Welcome to Hazel and Katniss and Harry and Star, a young adult literature podcast, their film and television adaptations, and everything in between. I'm Joe. And I'm Brenna. Brenna. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> We're still here. We're still kicking. We're still here. We're still kicking. We're still seeing people posting about HKHS pod as escapist joy on the Twitters. So we're still not talking about what we're not talking about, but we exactly. are still locked in our homes. <laughs> These are all factually correct. And I do still have a toddler playing learning games on an iPad next to me, and I do still have a cat, so apologies in advance there, Joe. Right. I will do my best. <laughs> We've managed to successfully avoid most interactions, apart from some minor exclamations of joy. <laughs> you don't want to edit those out anyway. Everybody needs a little Groot joy. There we go. Right. <laughs> yes. And I've successfully locked my husband into the bedroom, so uh, we are good to go. Nice. Let's do it. So <laughs> we got a shocking amount of mail about our Sex in YA episode. We sure did. Yeah. Yep. So we're going to open with that. And then we're each going to do a little bit of homework update because we haven't done one of those in a bit. Nope. And then we're going to wrap things up with... Uh... <laughs> we're going to wrap up with some lighthearted discussion <gasps> oh, wow. about a really great drama that just dropped on VOD on April 3rd called Never, Rarely, Sometimes, Always. And uh, I'm just going to do a quick spoiler warning slash trigger warning off mm -hmm. the top. Mm -hmm. This is a really great film. This is a really heavy, heavy film about abortion. And yeah. I got real mad and I got really not frustrated, but it was kind of like a uniquely terrifying movie to watch. Mm -hmm. So uh, if folks haven't checked it out before you listen to this and you plan to, it requires a certain headspace. Yes, and it's not about sexual assault, but there are references to sexual assault in the film. Um, and it's not about self-harm, but there are some brief scenes of self-harm in the film. Oof. Yeah. And the only reason I'm really bringing it up, I don't think I would in other contexts because it's quite fleeting in both instances. But I think mm -hmm. if folks are as wrangly and emotional as I am right now, um, I think our triggers are, are a little, probably a little bit different and maybe a little bit more sensitive than they were yes. maybe a few months ago. So just think it's worth the heads up. It's a beautiful film and it's really worth watching, but protect yourself. It's an emotional yeah. ride. Yeah. Yeah. So we will, we will get to that in the near future. But first, yes. Brenna, let's talk about sex again. Yay! <laughs> <laughs> I'm not gonna lie. Apparently, all we have to do is talk about sex and you folks come a running. Yeah, now you've got stuff to say to us. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate it. Yeah, we, we did actually hear back from quite a few people. I was quite pleased in addition to, you know, Andrew sending us some recommendations, which I always love. Mm -hmm. We actually also heard from a new listener. Mm -hmm. So shout out to Valeria from Sweden for giving us some comic book and manga recommendations. I also liked that. Yes. And we also got a nice long form response from listener T Books and Chocolate, who we know from the Twitter conversations, but we had never gotten a, an email from before. So that was nice. Mm hmm. Yeah. So maybe we'll start with the first person who wrote in, which is Miriam. Cool. So Miriam is one of the people that you and I frequently interact with online. Mm -hmm. And she is herself a YA author. I thought this was a really interesting perspective because Miriam's got kind of like the insider take on what it means to add sex to your book when it comes to like marketing and sales. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, which is something I think we speculated about in the episode, but of course we don't have the personal details. So Miriam was pretty frank about the fact that she has made a determined effort to include sex in her first and second YA book, uh, including masturbation, it's a lot of female sexuality, and she was basically told that her books would not get an English translation as a result. Mm-hmm which is, uh, frankly, very frustrating. (laughs) (laughs) It is very frustrating. And she also made the point that it's particularly the American market at play here where no one seems to bat an eye at violence, but sex is off limits. And I have always found that to be a very strange... I mean, we could speculate on the history of Puritanism and revolution as the cause of that component Mm -hmm. of the American psyche, but it's always something I found really strange. I remember when I was... And Brand New Mom, that movie about the women and the guy who who got credit for creating Wonder Woman came out. Oh, right. Yes. Uh, Professor Marston and the Women, I think, yeah. or something like that. Yeah. And I went to a, like a Mommy and Me screening of it when Groot was super tiny. And that was really a lifeline for me. Those movies, they were on like Tuesday afternoons. And they were great because they keep the lights a little higher. Mm-hmm. And they keep the, the sound, sound a little, little lower. lower. Yeah. And they have a diaper changing station right in the movie theater. So you don't have to miss anything if you have to change a diaper. Oh, <laughs> They're wow. really okay. amazing. And I um, was in line buying my ticket for that. And there's always two options. And the other one was like, oh, it was some Tom Cruise movie. Not Mission Impossible, but in that vein where he kills a lot of people. Right. And there's a, <laughs> okay. there's a mom next to me in line, and she had a kiddo older than Groot was, but still really little. And she was like, she actually said to me, she was like, I can't believe you're buying a ticket to like that movie that's so full of sex when your kid is going to be with you. And I was like. You're like, you're about to go see Jack Reacher, where yeah. he just murders people. <laughs> and that's the thing. I was like, I laughed it off. And I was like, oh, you know, they sleep through everything anyway. But like, Professor Marston and the Women. All of the sex in that movie is, like, consensual, mm-hmm. pleasurable. Like, if my kid is going to see one thing too early, I would rather it was sex than violence. I just, <laughs> that's yeah. where I'm at as a person. Uh, but it's interesting because it's the minority position, I realize. Yes. Yeah. It's hilarious, though, because I distinctly remember that film getting good reviews for a frank and honest portrayal of sex and polyamory and having the wherewithal to actually address this honestly, as opposed to Jack Reacher, where it's like, this person is indestructible and will kill many, many terrorists. It's just weird. I mean, like, in an ideal world, neither one of us is taking a baby to a movie, but but here we are. <laughs> like, right. I just, I was I was so shocked because it would also never occur to me to turn to another mom and be like, you're doing it wrong. So I was also just no. like, listen, I'm just here for the giant vat of Coke Zero and the popcorn for lunch. I don't really know what you want from me right now. Ooh, uh, let's just say that I made the mistake of talking to my sister, who has two children. I made the mistake of talking about parenting, and she just, like, came at me. (laughs) Not personally, but just, like, with all kinds of stories about how everyone has an opinion about how you should be parenting your children. And it's not just a sensitive topic. It's one where people are not hesitant to share their responses. And when you think about it, at the end of the day, like the way you raise your children absolutely will help to condition them and think about who they're going to grow up to be. Yep. But it's like an intensely, intimately personal thing. Yes. You don't know me, lady, in line at the movie theater. <laughs> no. Why are you telling me what I should and shouldn't be doing? <laughs> 
it was just such a strange experience. And for me, it really, I don't know, it has nothing to do with YA, obviously, but it really brought home for me the different responses that people have to sex and sexuality and how sort of inherently timid even Canadian culture is. I think Canada is a little bit more on kind of the British vein than America mm-hmm. is, but it's still, we we still swing towards the, the puritanical in a lot of ways. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So to come back to Miriam. Oh, right. She does. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Miriam. <laughs> no, no. I mean. It's all about me. It's all part of the same conversation. But uh, I did want to flag that she does acknowledge that, you know, she read a lot of Judy Bloom. She also read Aiden Chambers. <gasps> I loved seeing that. And then she references some Scandinavian authors. She references Peter Paul and Katrina von Breddow. Mm-hmm. And they are Swedish. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm interested because these are authors that i didn't get any kind of exposure to i I didn't do any homework to determine whether they themselves have english translations but i'm fascinated continuously fascinated by the idea that there are authors who we may never get to experience their writing because they are apparently deemed (gasps) too risque to be translated into english yeah it's true and it's it is frustrating and it's it's also I don't know, you learn so much about cultural priorities when you start to think about these kinds of issues, right? And and what we value versus what is quote unquote appropriate for teens. I think we learn a lot and sometimes it's not great what we learn. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So speaking of the difference between teens and adults, mm. we also got an email from Max and he took quite a personal angle. So Miriam did talk about how she had included like female female sex scenes in her books and how that's a really important aspect of her Mm -hmm. uh writing and then max talked a little bit about his experiences as a queer man and how the differences between the way teenagers approach sex in books and adults approach sex in books and how different that may be and why we may be uncomfortable for different reasons Mm mm-hmm So one of the things that he talked about was that teens might be uncomfortable with sex in some of these books because they're often written by adults. So you're a teenager and you're reading sex scenes that have been written by mature adults that are intended for you as a teenager. Mm -hmm. So there's a kind of disconnect there, which I definitely got. Like I remember having a conversation with a couple people about my own discomfort when we were reading Love, Simon. I may have raised it in the episode. Just thinking about how many of these queer books are written by straight white ladies. Yeah. (laughs) And thinking like, okay, so these older women are imagining teenage boys having sex and that was a little bit unusual for me but then part of this is like okay well we can't all be Rizal Reed where you know you're kind of like a wonderkin who publishes Mm -hmm. a very queer positive book maybe informed by your own experiences at a young age Mm -hmm. it's like if you want to see some of these books we need them to be written by people who may otherwise not like without them we don't have that kind of text out in the world Mm mm-hmm It's a good point, though, and it's definitely something that uh, I know John Green has gotten a lot of criticism for depicting teen sexuality. I'm not sure that that criticism has typically come from teens, however. I think that that criticism... So Max brings up this really important idea about, like, maybe teens feel uncomfortable with it. And I would love to read some of that thinking, because I haven't. What I mostly read is what we talked about last episode, which is sort of the pearl-clutching adult Mm -hmm. response. To conversations about teen sexuality but it's it's a troubled concept particularly because views around you know age of consent and adulthood are 
malleable and they change over time. And Mm -hmm. there's like, yeah, there's a lot to unpack. I mean, I think about it particularly in adaptations, like the idea of filming sex scenes between teens in what is sort of by default a somewhat exploitative relationship. Yeah. Which is usually why we see aged up actors, right? Right. So that it hopefully becomes slightly less uncomfortable. Yeah. Oh, if we have to see Bella Thorne looking 35 in the dove having like makeout faces with Robbie Amell, it's not as big of a deal because in the back of our minds, we know that they're not 16. Yeah, it's true. Also, of course, you brought her back into this episode. Is she your arch nemesis now? (laughs) Uh, She and I have been fighting publicly for many years now. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So a couple of other things that Max highlights is one reason that adults might be uncomfortable having sex in YA is because they also would just rather not deal Mm. with it, right? Like the idea that it's uncomfortable to talk to your kids about sex. So the idea that they might be reading it and then thinking about how are they addressing that, knowing what your kids are learning and engaging with Mm -hmm. can be very uncomfortable. And then one final point that I hadn't really considered is the fact that things like politics and upbringing can obviously really inform you. So Max makes a very specific example where he got into an argument with some of his classmates who argued that adults writing sex scenes meant that they were pedophiles. Yeah. Which is something that wouldn't have even crossed my mind. And of course, this speaks to that disconnect that you were talking about between teenagers and adults but also just the way that we approach sex like just because an adult writes sex doesn't mean that they're thinking about teenagers in a sexual fashion and getting pleasure from it yeah it's a weird like foray into thought crimes (laughs) you know like Mm -hmm. just took a weird twist but it's something i've seen before there was a very public accusation i think we talked about it on one of the john green episodes There was a very public accusation of him that took this kind of angle. Yes, I remember that too, yeah. Like, that's a big claim, right? Extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence, and I'm I'm not sure it's good for culture as a whole to decide that this is so. It makes me super uncomfortable to, yeah, it just makes me super uncomfortable. Well, I think therein lies the path to censorship. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, okay, so you mentioned tea, books, and chocolate. Oh, wow. Was this ever a world I had not even considered when we were talking about sex and YA? So we, in the episode, <laughs> we discussed how Harry Potter is a wildly sexless series. And I stand by that assertion. <laughs> and then <laughs> yeah. here, here comes a fascinating counterpoint. Yeah, so tea, books, and chocolate points out that for people her age and a lot of her friends, that as the books came out, it was Harry Potter fan fiction that actually gave them, to quote her, she says, it was my entry point into reading about desire and sexuality. Mm-hmm. Which, yes, I mean, I don't know Absolutely. why I didn't think of it. That fandom has often been that. Like, I would also say that much of Star Trek is wildly sexless. And yet the fan fiction for Star Trek is the opposite of sexless. Yeah, it's the sexlessness almost allows the space for people to introduce sex and fantasy into a sexless world. Yes, and it's interesting, though, because Tea Books and Chocolate takes it in a, in a direction that I wouldn't have. She writes, do they feel they can keep it sexless because the imagined audience will create the sex for themselves? And I... Yeah, boom, mind blown. <laughs> my mind was a little bit blown, but I still think it's the other way around. I think what you're suggesting is closer to what's happening, that the sexlessness of the world almost requires the fan fiction to tell a more whole and thorough story of these characters Mm -hmm. i still think that the reason why harry potter 
and the big stories that came after it are predominantly without sex is because it's a lot safer to sell to an American market. And yes, J.K. Rowling was writing in Britain, but by the time her characters are of age to start having sort of sexual thoughts and feelings, we're definitely looking Mm -hmm. at an American thrust to the sales for that series, right? Yep. So yeah, I resist the very generous conclusion (laughs) that Team Books (laughs) of Chocolate comes to there, because I think it's the other way around. But I do think that I'm, well, I'm just very grateful for the reminder that fan fiction is an entirely different way of approaching these texts and thinking about sexuality and desire in, in relation to them. And a fascinating one, right? I mean, as much as we have come after and diminished some of the writing that we've seen, let's face it, there is obviously a really dedicated, like massively profitable market to be made. That's how we get stuff like The Kissing Booth and After and Twilight. I have no beef with fan fiction that is fan fiction. I have a beef (laughs) with fan fiction with the serial numbers filed off, (laughs) attempting (laughs) to masquerade as original storytelling. Actually, I shouldn't say that as original characterization, because the storytelling is not usually the issue, it's the characterization. Mm-hmm. But I just, yeah, no, like I think fan fiction is an amazing creative outlet. And I read a really interesting piece a couple weeks ago that I'm not going to remember where it came from. But the the argument that was sort of concluded was that we need more space in culture for fan fiction to just be fan fiction. Like the problem with these recent successes is that now everybody assumes that fanfic writers are just sort of like waiting to get discovered. Oh, interesting. When really, what Tea Books and Chocolate is talking about in her email about a different way of thinking about these texts is is really the sort of persistent value in fan fiction since its earliest days. Well, I mean, I think one of the reasons that I like fan fiction is because it's an outlet for people not just to project things like desires and fantasy into worlds that maybe otherwise didn't have them. But to me, it's also a safe introduction into a writing sphere where if you feel like you don't have the capacity to come up with entirely fleshed out characters and situations, Mm -hmm. it gives you that first tentative step to explore your own craft and like who you are as a creative personality The thing that I don't like is when suddenly you're saying, I have dirty thoughts about Harry's styles, and I want to explore those and think about like telling a story with it. And then suddenly it becomes, oh, how do I change Harry's styles into some British rocker, and then (laughs) suddenly make millions of dollars off of it? It's the intersection between the art and the commerce that it it does. It files the edges off of mm-hmm. a creative endeavor so that we can make a lot of money. And I don't like that quite as much. Yeah. And for me, my favorite thing about fan fiction has always been this idea of writing back to dominant culture. So like, there are no queer characters in Harry Potter. Well, I mean, right. let's announce well. <laughs> 20 years later that Dumbledore's gay or whatever. But like, uh, so I'm going to write those relationships in because that's the world that I experience and that's how I want to see it. Or right. there's no disabled characters in twilight so i want to write a version of twilight Mm -hmm. that includes disabled characters right so like that aspect of writing back to dominance i think is where fan fiction is at its most radical and most interesting right and unfortunately when you repackage to sell it then you that goes away oh yeah yeah (laughs) this is the trade-off Okay, so maybe to wrap up, I'm just going to give one final shout out. So at Sirius Rachel on Twitter, she responded with a very brief Twitter thread about 
sorry, I assume it's a she, they responded with a brief Twitter thread on books that they maybe read too early Mm. or that changed the way that they thought about sex and literature. And I thought it was particularly funny because they referenced the clan of the cave bear, which uh, I can also tell you is my husband's Rocky introduction. (laughs) Although for him, it was actually the film version of it. But it's a film and a text that explores like a prehistoric kind of Neanderthal cave people society. But it just gets loaded with graphic sexuality. Sure, like you do. (laughs) Right, yeah. So Sirius Rachel said that they were in high school when they read this, so they probably weren't too young, but the content was such that they felt like maybe they shouldn't have been reading it. Right. Yeah. I think there's a lot of that. Oh, goodness. We had a, an email in from one of the people we've already talked about who who mentioned the book Flowers in the Attic. I think that was Miriam. Yeah, yeah that I th- uh, that came up a lot on Twitter as well. I think Flowers in the Attic was one of those books where it was like, should anybody be reading this? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Oh, and listeners, don't think that I haven't considered doing an episode on Flowers in the Attic because there have been several adaptations of it. Lord. (laughs) Joe, I'm so young and innocent. (laughs) Well, people apparently want me to do an entirely separate podcast on Bella Thorne's opera, (laughs) so I feel like the only reciprocal relationship that I can do is to make you watch a bunch of terrible (laughs) crap and maybe then force you to go through that too. (sighs) This was a great topic. Thanks everyone for writing in. We honestly uh, were not expecting the deluge and we enjoyed it. Particularly Mm -hmm. now, it was nice to have lots of things to think about. Yeah, particularly when they they all kind of came in in a short order. So it was like, I'm having a bad day and I open it up and people are just like, hey, I've got something to say about this topic. And I just mm-hmm. thought, this is lovely. I really appreciate reading this right now. Yeah, it's so true. So true. And yes, we did get uh, recommendations from Andrew and Valerie. Valerie referenced Moon Girl and the Devil Dinosaur, which listeners to the early episodes of this show will know how much I enjoy as a series. And I think Andrew's recommendation is going to come back. So we're going to not talk about that right now, but stay tuned. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so Brenna, let's uh, transition over and talk a little bit about some homework. Have you been reading anything recently? Joe, I read a book. (gasps) Oh my goodness. And let me tell you, I finally logged back into Goodreads after some time away, Mm -hmm. and I am currently five books behind my reading goal. Oh, Goodreads. Stop shaming me for my slow reading. (laughs) I really wish someone at Goodreads would install like a pandemic button on Goodreads that you could just push and be like, do not alert me to anything to do with my reading goals right now. Or even like, you've fallen a little bit behind, but I think you're doing great. Oh yeah, see, that would be nice. I know you're still trying. That would have been fine. Yeah. Have you picked up a book? If not, it might help you. But also, I respect your decision not to. Right? There's not enough respect from Goodreads, I feel like. (laughs) But I did read a book, and it's a book that I know you were highly anticipating, so I'm excited Mm -hmm. to talk about it. Okay. I read Faith Taking Flight by Julie Murphy. Oh, wow. Okay. Uh Yes. So this book is not out until July, so... Wow, so you're coming back with a homework assignment that other people (laughs) can't read with your humble brag. I see. I see how it is, Brenna. (laughs) Joe, I could not read it. Like, it's... Um, yeah, it's Julie Murphy. It's Julie Murphy, and it's Faith. So for those who aren't familiar, Faith is a superhero from the Valiant Comics universe. Mm-hmm. In the comics, she's like a 20-something fanfic writer slash, like, gossip columnist. 
mm-hmm. who is also a kick-ass superhero who goes by the name of Zephyr. And this is a novel that Julie Murphy writes, and it's her origin story. Nice. It's so good. <laughs> it was I mean, so good. <laughs> predictably so, but yes. tell me about it. So one of the things that I love about Faith as a character in the superhero comics universe is that she's fat and yeah. she's happy about her life and her body and she is discriminated against definitely by other people and she has to deal with that but her sense of herself is super solid and she's she doesn't apologize for her body and her costuming is amazing Mm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. i really like the costume her costuming is amazing and the characterization in in the versions of faith that i've read in comics you know oftentimes when we see like a I won't even say fat. When we see like a like quote unquote Regular larger person. <laughs> figure in comics, they're like all smoothed out, right? Their body might be bigger, but it's still like a rock hard. Like yep. Faith always has like a couple of tummy rolls, right? Mm-hmm. And like her arms look like fat woman's arms and her legs are large and powerful, but also like ripply. And mm-hmm. it's just so freaking refreshing. And Julie Murphy, of course, taps into that spirit. Like, she creates a costume for herself at one point in this book, and it's, like, a pair of blue skinny jeans, um, <laughs> a t-shirt that she, like, ties at the side, like, 80s style. Nice, okay. <laughs> that she draws a Z on and a homemade cape and a pair of sneakers. Nice. So good. <laughs> like, she's so human. So this is a really fun story. I would definitely uh, suggest that you go ahead and put it on your holds list or ask your libraries to order it or pre-order it now. It's the first of a two-book series, so there is going to be a sequel to this origin story. This is a really good gateway drug for people who think they don't like superhero stories. Oh, okay. Because it is predominantly a YA story about exploring your queerness and being infatuated with celebrities and right. losing and relatable stuff. your friends. Yeah, like tons of relatable stuff. And then also... She's discovering her superpowers. So the super heroics are not actually at the center of the story, which I really appreciated. I'm sure that they will have a bigger part in book two, just by the way right. it's set up. But yeah, so basically the premise of the story is that Faith's an orphan. She lives with her grandmother. Her favorite TV show and the TV show that she watched with her parents religiously, it's kind of like a Doctor Who analog, like it's been on for 20 years, Okay, is now filming its newest season in her hometown. And on the one hand, she's like this obsessive fan who knows everything. She keeps a blog about the series. But then on the other hand, by a series of circumstances, she ends up meeting one of the actors from the show and developing a bit of a relationship. Mm. But she also has friends who are struggling with marks and money. And she works at a shelter, an animal shelter, where dogs are suddenly going missing. And then Mm. all of a sudden, people are noticing that homeless people in the town where they live are disappearing. First the dogs and then the vulnerable. Yep. Yes, exa- that's exactly it. And so, and then Faith finds herself at the center of a mystery. Hmm. It's a really grippy, really fun read and takes a just really nice approach to fat bodies, to queerness, to feminism, to friendship. It's just overall a glass of Julie Murphy water, totally refreshing <laughs> and uh, strongly recommend. So that's Faith Taking Flight by Julie Murphy out in July. Nice. To be honest, as you were describing it, it sounds like it would also make a really good pairing with the Slayer book that you yes! eventually made your way through. I did. And this one also, I started in January. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but that's me, not the books. Um, yeah, it would. It would make a really good pairing with those really different ways of thinking about 
women as heroes in particular and young women as heroes. Mm-hmm. So yeah, strongly recommend. Excellent. I love a Julie Murphy. Right? Who doesn't love a Julie Murphy? <laughs> if you don't love a Julie Murphy, don't write in. <laughs> Noted. You banned. You banned. Okay, so I'm going to do a follow-up to a book that I talked briefly about in the February forecast called What I Want You to See by Catherine Linka. And Brenna, the minute that I finished this book, I immediately texted you and said that I thought you would really enjoy it as well. I did put it on my library holds list, but as anybody who's seen a library e-hold list these days, whew, uh, yeah. 10 months. <laughs> I'll see you never. <laughs> <laughs> so if folks don't remember it probably a little bit closer to new adult although it's still got a lot of tenants of young adult fiction and this is about a college freshman named sabine rays and she has gone through a lot of personal challenges in the last year she lost her mother who was killed in a hit and run accident and she's dealing with some pretty significant poverty she was forced to live in the car that she has, which is the only significant piece of valuable property that she has left. Mm. Her mother had previously been working for a big name celebrity as a kind of personal assistant. And Sabine makes the ill-informed decision to hawk the clothes and the items that she had from this woman uh, so that she could pay to stay alive, more or less. Mm. But it comes back to haunt her because, of course, the woman demands to know where these items are are the main crux of the story is that she was lucky enough or talented enough to win a full scholarship to the art institute of her dreams but it's merit-based so she has to demonstrate that she is not just keeping up with the crowd but actually excelling beyond them or else she will financially lose it so she's in a very precarious place. She's not in a great headspace. And then she starts butting heads with a fairly prestigious painter who she was hoping to impress so that he would take her under his wing. And instead, they have a very combative relationship. Mm. So what ultimately ends up happening is that she meets a TA and he ends up giving her exclusive access to the instructor's newest painting, which has already been sold sight unseen for millions of dollars. No one has actually seen it. And by giving her the access and allowing her to duplicate it, it's an opportunity for her to grow and expand her painting practice. But you can already tell that there's some nefarious activity going on here. So there's mm. a crime that results, and Sabine is implicated, but it has to do a lot, like the death, with shame and vulnerability. The thing that I like the most about this particular book is that it's actually very, very frank about not just the morality issues about, like, Sabine knows she shouldn't be recreating this painting. She knows she shouldn't be lying to people about it. She knows that she shouldn't be doing a lot of things. So she struggles with that. But it's a very frank and honest portrayal of a person who is just making it. Like, in a lot of these books with stakes, you're kind of like, well you know, they've got a rich family, or they've got mm. friends, or mm. they've got, you know, all different kinds of privilege. And Sabine really doesn't have that. She has a landlady who looks after her and is giving her a deal on the rent. But apart from that, all of her friends are rich, and they don't understand her situation. She doesn't confide in them because she's embarrassed by it. But mm. like, if she doesn't keep this scholarship, she doesn't have a future. So the minute that she decides to actually make a copy of this painting, you know it's a bad thing. She knows it's a bad thing. 
but it's something that she feels she has to do or else she'll lose the scholarship. But by painting it, she puts herself into a different corner. And I'm not going to give anything away, but this is not a fairy tale. This is not a fantasy. Things don't work out where the problems just magically vanish. They are actually compounded and there are real consequences in this book. So it's not just well written. It's not just that Sabine is a really interesting, flawed character, but I really like that the book takes a real hard look at what it means to live on the margins of society, be nearly at risk, like one false move could put you on the streets and homeless. And yeah, the book carries that through all the way to the end. Wow, you've made it sound amazing. Yeah, I really liked it. The one thing I didn't like is that there's meant to be a twist where you find out that someone has been lying and you're like, yeah, I knew that the minute that this person was introduced, but that didn't end up doing away with all the other good that the book does. But yeah, to me, the end just really ends up saving the book with regard to that particular flaw. Cool. Yeah. So that is What I Want You to See. It's by Katherine Linka. It's a really strong recommend for me. Nice. Okay, cool. Thank you. Okay, so speaking of frank and honest (laughs) and a little bit hard, shall we talk about never, rarely, sometimes, always? I didn't see you at school today. I went to the doctor. What's wrong? Girl problems. Don't you ever just wish you were a dude? All the time. This is the most magical sound you will ever hear. She's not ready to be a mom. Where else could you go? Nowhere in Pennsylvania. I think you should try another place. You going to New York? What are you doing there? Seeing family and stuff. Who came with you today? My cousin. Do you have a place to stay tonight? I know you came from far away. I'll figure it out. This area's closed. Can I sleep here? Where's the rest of the money? I want to make sure that you're safe. I know this is hard. you some questions they can be really personal just answer either never rarely sometimes or always and i want to be clear like i recognize that this is a really well done film and it's really as we're going to talk about very unique in the way it approaches the subject matter but oh boy (laughs) Yes. So folks, uh, I did post an amusing (laughs) (laughs) exchange that Brenna and I had on Twitter as we were watching this. But I think the big thing is that if you go into the film knowing what it's about and being mentally prepared for it, I'm not going to say that that lessens the impact of it because it doesn't. But don't go into this saying like, I'm just going to casually watch this movie. 
Be in the mood for it. Be in the mood for it. It's not a casual come upon it, which is why I said to Joe, it's kind of odd, right? Because we're seeing a flood of things being released onto video on demand. Definitely with this kind of sense of, well, we're all going to be watching Mm -hmm. stuff because you're not going anywhere moment that we're in. And so Joe and I were talking before we started recording that this is a really good example of how art has to find you at the right moment. So yeah, it's phenomenal. And also... I was sad after watching it. (laughs) Yeah. So a little bit of background on the film. So this debuted earlier this year at Sundance, and it debuted to rave reviews. This is the third feature film by writer-director Eliza Hittman. I had heard good things about her previous film. It's a queer film called Beach Rats, and so a lot of people in the queer community had talked about it. It sounded like it wasn't quite as well received. It does that kind of tropey queer story that I don't really like of people who end up hustling and it mm. ends up getting them into trouble, and mm. it's that's a bit too tired for me. Mm. So I was happy to see that this was a... Not a different take on a female sexuality story, but that it doesn't give way to some of the tropes that you might expect. No, it doesn't. And one of the things that you and I were talking about as we were texting last night watching it is like we were both waiting for what are ultimately tropes of abortion tales. And Mm -hmm. when they didn't come, we were relieved, but also the film never lets you actually relax into that. No, that's actually where I think a lot of the power of the Mm. film comes from, is it's playing on the idea that you are anticipating that these girls are constantly in danger. Mm -hmm. So maybe before we get too far into that. uh, Yeah. So this film debuted at Sundance. It was meant to have a theatrical run. It did have a brief one, but obviously that was circumvented by the coronavirus. So then it was dropped onto VOD on April 3rd. Uh, pretty pretty good day, Joe. April 3rd. <laughs> Happy belated. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> so this film has a 99% fresh rating on Rotten Tomatoes. I can see that. Pretty crazy. So quickly, the cast is more or less, it's two lead actresses. They're kind of unknown. So Sydney Flanagan is Autumn, our main character. She is 17 years old and she is secretly pregnant. So the film follows her and her cousin, Skylar, who is played by Talia Ryder, as they leave Pennsylvania, a small town in Pennsylvania, to New York City so that she can seek an abortion. Oh, God. (laughs) The two other characters of note... Oh, sorry, I didn't look up who Jasper is. Ugh, who cares? Basically, she has a mother who is never named. She is just mother. And then mother has a... How do we talk about this boyfriend, Ted, played by Ryan Eagold? So Ryan Eagold is the biggest name in this film. People would know him if you watched The Blacklist. He's on a medical drama right now called New Amsterdam. Here he is a POS... Yep. Stands for piece of beep. Yep. <laughs> He's drunk all the time. He's verbally abusive to Autumn. And all the scenes that take place with him in the early parts of the film where she's still at home are very uncomfortable. Yes. It sets the tone for the film to come. <laughs> yes. It's so true. He's awful. He's awful. The one time he says anything nice to her, it's at the prodding of her mother. And he says, your mother told me to tell you you were good because she had just been like a talent show. And it's just the way he delivers that line. Oh, Mm -hmm. God. Yeah, he's skeezy. He's scummy. He's drunk. He's even just ill-kempt. Like everything about this guy screams your mother's bad boyfriend who 
let's just put a pin in him because I want to come back to him during like the film's kind of standout sequence, which is when she's answering the questionnaire at the abortion mm-hmm. clinic. Mm-hmm. I mm-hmm. I want to see if my thoughts are right, and I have a feeling they are, but we'll come back to it. Mm-hmm. So the film is about an hour and 40 minutes long. Most of it takes place as Skylar and Autumn are making their way by bus to New York City. And the film is kind of a bureaucratic nightmare mm-hmm. as well as a nightmare for what it's like to be a teenage female in the world, in mm-hmm. the U.S. It's filled with microaggressions and microsexual predatory men. Like, there's no good men in this movie at all. No, not one. We see the girls working in some kind of grocery store. They have to get their hands kissed when they drop off the money at the end of their shift. I like the fact that like you don't even see the man's face who does it. It's just something that they both accepted they have to do in order to remain gainfully employed. That is actually one of the things the film does best is that it has absolutely zero interest in the interior lives of men. Nope. Which is so rare, right? Because so Mm -hmm. often we see sexual assaults or traumas to women being used as fodder for a dude's character arc. Mm -hmm. And this film is the exact opposite. It's like always focused on the young women's faces. Whatever they're going through, their reactions are the primary focus of the film. Which often leaves you feeling very unsettled because you can't see what else is going on in the scene always. Mm -hmm. It's a lot of close-ups, yeah. It's a lot of close-ups. It's very intimate. So it's helpful to make the audience specifically relate to them. Like we're very much aligned with them. But yeah, you're right. It constantly feels like there's threats just on the outside of the frame. Mm -hmm. And there's also a distinct lack of dialogue. Like this is Mm -hmm. shockingly shockingly silent movie there's Mm -hmm. so few exchanges of dialogue which to me is also really really rare for a film that deals with teenagers we're so used to Mm -hmm. these teenagers with acerbic wit Mm -hmm. and comebacks and quips and Mm -hmm. these girls speak when they have something to say even not then often no and it's interesting as well because autumn is to a certain extent a bit of an unlikable character Mm -hmm. and i don't say this in a dismissive way just that she is really going through some stuff right now Mm -hmm. and she doesn't have time or the emotional bandwidth to be kind to people so if she doesn't have anything to say to you like they meet a boy on the bus and they later meet up with him when they need (laughs) to borrow some money and Mm -hmm. there's an element of like prostituting yourself Mm -hmm. for stupid men because this is what the situation demands if you want to get home you've got to go to the bowling alley in the karaoke and drink some beer with this dude Mm-hmm. and let him kiss you uh, yeah yeah but autumn has no time for this boy and skylar yeah. only has time for him because she realizes that if she doesn't do this they're not going to get home yep there is no alternative because they can't call their moms and there's this great scene where autumn is hiding behind this pillar mm. while the guy has her friend like up against the same pillar on the other yeah. side And she just reaches her hand around and she like holds, like they just hold pinkies so that her friend knows she's right there. Mm -hmm. Oh, that scene. Yeah. And this is a movie that's filled with those scenes. Mm -hmm. Quiet solidarity. Yes. Yes. And just 
so emotional yeah. and so troubling and so uncomfortable and so real, yeah. right? It's a very real movie, and I ultimately think that that is... Yeah, this is why it's so hard to watch. It's a down, it's its downfall right now. It's just, it's so real. And there's scenes when she's preparing for the abortion. There are scenes when she's being examined. There are conversations about what happens to your body during an abortion that, like, mm-hmm. I applaud their inclusion. And also, oh my, gosh. my yeah. uterus tried to climb out of my body during those scenes. Like, yep. it tried to mm-hmm. get out and move out. And, like, my, my uterus tried to go and watch High School Musical. That's what my uterus was trying to do. <laughs> oh, um, yeah. I mean, like, as a man, <laughs> you know, I have a rough idea about what an abortion entails. Mm-hmm. And then I watch this movie and I realize I have no idea what an abortion entails. Yep. This movie is so stark and frank in its depiction you you can't help but applaud it because mm-hmm. what other movie dares to just say, guess what? This is what it's like. Yep. I think the thing that I ended up enjoying the most about it was how terrible the institutionalized regiment mm-hmm. is around this. So the reason that they have to leave Pennsylvania is because it is a state where minors cannot get abortions without the consent of their parents. Mm-hmm. And also, by the way, you can't get it even if you do want it and you have your parents' consent unless you are a victim of rape or incest. Mm -hmm. You know, this is the reality for a lot of people who are living particularly in the States right now. Mm -hmm. It sets up the film like this is part of the reason that the film is so filled with dread, right? Mm -hmm. Because the situation for these girls is already at impossible. Mm -hmm. So they are teenage girls who are working low-income jobs. They can't tell their parents what's happening. So they just steal money from their jobs, and they make this secret plan, and they think, okay, we just have to get to New York. It's a one-day procedure. We'll be back. Mm -hmm. And we'll just lie. We'll say, you know, I'm staying at your place. You're staying at my place. We'll be back by the end of the weekend. And immediately they are just hit with these roadblocks where they Mm -hmm. don't understand how to navigate the literal system, like the subway system, the bus system. They get to the abortion clinic. They find out that Autumn has been lied to by a pro-life clinic in her hometown. Yeah, one of these quote-unquote crisis pregnancy centers, which is actually an anti-abortion center. Yep. Yeah, where basically they were just trying to convince her that abortion is not an option. She Mm -hmm. could either keep the child or she could give it up for adoption Mm -hmm. as though this is a situation that you can impose on a young woman. There's the perfect moment where the top, like they give her a bunch of flyers and the one on the top is the rights of the father. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. Yeah. These little moments, right? Mm Mm-hmm. So they find out that they can't get the one-day abortion because she is actually 17 weeks pregnant, not 10. Mm -hmm. So then they have to stay overnight. This Mm -hmm. is when my anxiety levels just started to skyrocket because Mm -hmm. I knew that these girls don't have the money to just rent a hotel in New York City. And they can't even come back to this abortion clinic. They have to go to the one in the city proper. It's a two-day procedure, they find out. It's just the scale of the film is actually quite small. This is a very intimate, it's a very personal story, but it feels like life or death. Yes. You texted me, this is like a horror movie. It is. It's shot like a horror movie. And I think it's so tense. And all the focus is on their faces and their reactions. And you always feel like there's some threat coming from off screen. And it's so quiet. Like it does. It's shot like a horror movie. <laughs> Too much. <sighs> I think the atmosphere is such 
it's not a desaturated look, but the color palette mm, of the film very is gray. very stark. Yeah. yeah, it's a lot of muted kind of flat tones. Not a lot of joy in this world. No. One of the things that I did appreciate, though, is there's two scenes where the girls actually look okay. And you think, oh my gosh, there's a ray of sunshine. And it involves scenes where they actually get to eat. Yes. I like that a lot. Yeah, like you know, too. it's the comfort that food can bring you. Yes. The opportunity to just buy a tart and enjoy it or have like a nice piece of bread. Yes. Okay, so let's talk about the scene. It gets referenced in virtually every single review of this film. And it's more or less a long take, which means that there's no editing. The camera is just fixed on Autumn as she answers a questionnaire from which the film gets its title. She's given a series of statements and she has to answer them based on the title, which is Never, never rarely, rarely, sometimes, sometimes and always. always. And... Uh, it's hard to understate just how incredible Sydney Flanagan is in mm-hmm. this scene. Mm-hmm. Okay. So Sydney Flanagan just does, it's like a roller coaster over the course of maybe two minutes. So this woman is off screen asking her questions and it's really trying to get to the crux of who Autumn is as a person. Mm-hmm. You know, medically they're responsible to make sure that this girl is of sound mind, that she's not being coerced, she's not being threatened into getting an abortion. Mm-hmm. But this is also the only moment where we actually see Autumn react emotionally and we get the cue. And I love that the film doesn't actually say So it's clear that she has been, how would you say this, sexually manipulated or sexually forced? Yes. And initially the film suggests that it is one of the high school boys. So the film opens with her at a talent show, as you suggested, Brenna. Yeah. And she is being mocked. She gets called a slut by one of the boys in the audience. And at the after show party dinner thing, she ends up dumping a glass of water onto one of the boys at a table. And I feel like the film wants you to think that this is the boy that impregnated her. But in this scene, in this long take in the abortion clinic, Mm -hmm. it's the boyfriend, right? Yeah, the dad. Yeah, it is. I thought it was. Okay. That's just about when the movie broke me in half. Yeah. Yeah. It's that thing of a movie showing, not Mm -hmm. telling, Mm -hmm. letting you slowly realize like we've called it a horror film we said it's very tense it's very uncomfortable very upsetting i think the best thing i can say about it is that you think the worst is going to happen to these two girls and this scene as horrifying as it is actually confirms that the worst thing has already happened to them they're on the other side of the worst thing that could happen to a young girl yeah But it's this moment that you realize it as an audience member. And that's why it's so hard. It's so hard. And you just realize how alone she is, right? Because up until that scene, you sort of wonder why she doesn't just call her mom when they get really stuck. Right. Because the mom doesn't, the mom is not bad. No. The mom is just, her attention is divided. Yes. Yes. But she clearly loves her daughter. Mm -hmm. She clearly wants to support her daughter through whatever she's going through. Like that's really obvious. But at the same time, she won't call her. Even when they mm-hmm. run out of money, she won't call her. Even when they don't know where they're going to sleep at night, she won't call her. And you don't yeah. know why until that scene. Yeah. And that's what makes it 10 times harder. Yeah. You just realize how alone she is and how lucky she is that she has this one friend who is so devoted to her care, which isn't mm-hmm. to say she's perfect, right? They have this great fight. Because oh, of I course the they fight. have a fight. The situation is so tense. Of course they have a fight. 
but it's so gentle also. Mm-hmm. And it's so sort of quickly forgiven also in a way that yes. I found really believable and honest in a way that female friendships rarely are on screen. Mm-hmm. And again, it's like the moment where they make up, mm-hmm. no dialogue. Mm-mm. It's just Autumn tracks Skylar down in the bathroom of the bus depot and Skylar helps Autumn put on a little bit of makeup to hide the fact that they have not slept have in not slept what appears to be 24 hours by yeah. this point. Yeah. And then, of course, you know, yay, the gut punch where you realize they're putting on makeup because they're calling this boy because mm-hmm. they need money because mm-hmm. it's what they have to do to survive. This movie is really good. It's really good. I don't want to talk about it anymore. Is that okay? That is absolutely fine. I was going to say, <laughs> I think we've made our point. The movie has made its point. <sighs> it made me so mad about mm-hmm. the state of women's reproductive health in the US. So oh, yeah. Tech box on that. If you're not already a radical about women's reproductive rights, and this movie doesn't make you radical about women's reproductive rights, there's no hope for you. (laughs) And also, please stop listening to this podcast because we don't support your values. Yeah, we're very confused about what you like about this show. (laughs) Exactly. So never, rarely, sometimes, always, it is available right now on VOD for rent. And it is really great. It's really tough. I think if you can watch this and not be moved or not be troubled or not be upset, you're maybe a better person than me, or maybe you're a little dead inside. I was going to say you're a worse person. You're definitely a worse person. (laughs) But yeah, it's a big, big recommend. I can now see why people were kind of going gaga for it, but uh, protect yourself. Yes. If you haven't seen it and you've just listened to this and it sounds like something you can't handle right now, it's absolutely not something you can handle right now. Agreed. Agreed. Yeah. Okay. So. Yeah. We will be back next week. Yes. And next week we're doing something a little bit lighter, a little bit fluffier. Quite a bit lighter and fluffier. Yes. And we're checking out (laughs) uh, a series that I have absolutely zero familiarity with, which is the first book of Percy Jackson and the Olympians, The Lightning Thief by Mm -hmm. Rick Riordan. Riordan? Riordan? I think Riordan. Real hot dog. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so we're talking about that next week. So that's one to dust off if it's an old favorite of yours. We'll be taking a look at it in time for the 10th anniversary this year of the film, which shocks me. I feel like this came out well, two years ago. So I know. And there's a sequel too. So depending on whether we like it enough, we could always check out <laughs> uh, another version of it later on. Sounds good. Um, If you want to talk more about Sex and YA, if you want to give us some great book recommendations, if you have seen Never Rarely, Sometimes Always and want to talk, you can find us on the Twitters at hashtag HKHSpod. Joe, how do they get a hold of you with Bella Thorne fanfiction? Don't tempt me. You can reach me at B stole my remote. That's the letter B. And I'm at Brenna C. Gray. That's Gray with an A. And as always, keep the long form feedback coming. Ideas for minisodes. Just wanting to chat. HKHSpod at gmail.com. You make our day when you write in. Mm-hmm. Really. Mm-hmm. We do love hearing from you folks. Mm-hmm. We do. Uh, yeah. So I guess that's that, Joe. Stay well. Mm-hmm. Listeners, stay well. Yes. We're thinking about you. And um, until next time, I'll see you on the page. And I will see you on the screen.